everyone, and welcome to a really very special episode of Invisible Not Broken. Um, I am taking a departure from our usual interview process, and I'm so excited. I have Emily Guy Birkin here, who is a financial guru, financial mensch, and uh, she has a world of books and a whole lot of really good advice, and I am making her think a little outside of her usual box in how she can help those of us with chronic illness and disability handle our finances. Emily, I'm so excited to talk to you. <laughs> how did you get <laughs> involved you. in, in um, I, you're not involved in the chronic illness world per se, but how did you get involved in financial planning? Uh, so it was really an accident. You know how so much of life is, you know, just what happens when you're making other plans, as they say. Um, so I'm actually an English teacher by training. Um, I taught high school English for uh, for four years. Uh, and then we moved, my husband and I moved while I was pregnant with my first child who was due at the beginning of the next school year. So I knew I wasn't going to be teaching that year. And uh, so I decided to find some writing gigs just to keep a little bit of money coming in while uh, while I took that year off. Um, one of the first uh, blogs that I, I was able to land was a site called ptmoney.com. Um, so while I don't have a specific background in finance, I didn't, um, major in economics or anything like that. I don't have an MBA. Um, my father was a financial planner. So growing up, I, I, I kind of grew up a little bit in the industry and I have been a money nerd from birth. <laughs> like I was the kid who was taking all of my money out of the piggy bank and counting it and putting it all back in again. I love that. I mean, like with my kids, what we did is we did a, um, 30, like, a uh, certain percentage went to charity, certain percentage mm -hmm. went savings, certain percentage they could decide what they're going to spend it on. So what were some of your big takeaways from being a kid of a financial planner? What did you end up implementing with your own children? <laughs> I, I'm taking notes, by the way. This is not altruism for all of my listeners. I'm taking notes. <laughs> So, uh, um, well, from my dad, I, like, what's funny is, like, my sister and I were, you know, we're, we're three years apart. We're raised in the same household. Um, and uh, so, like, I was the one who, like, it stuck when my dad would say things like, the best result with your taxes is to get a modest refund in April. And a modest refund I knew was $500 or less. And so, like, I'm a nine-year-old who, <laughs> who has this rattling around in my brain. So, um, and, uh, my dad didn't necessarily, uh, so my dad was very good at the kind of investment side of money. Um, and he was not so like budgeting was not necessarily his, his, uh, strong suit. Uh, so he did not necessarily pass on, um, specific ideas and things like that to me. Um, uh, but my, my husband and I, um, have started, we've got an eight year old and a five year old, two boys. And so they each get, uh, an allowance. Um, it's equal to their age. So the eight year old get eight, gets $8 and the five year gets five dollars and I make them when they get their allowance or when they spend it they each have a little uh, ledger where they have to write down what they got and um, and figure out how much that that they have and then count the money in their money jar to make sure that the money matches their math so um, that I want to get them in the habit of tracking their spending and tracking their income um, and also in the habit of, uh, you know, doing the math regularly, I think is also very, very good. So I, I want them to be the sort of people who are not overwhelmed by like making change and things like that as much as in the modern world, you don't need it so much anymore. But it's still, I think, an important thing to be able to do that quickly in your head. That's fantastic. And so while you haven't really dealt with chronic illness yourself and budgeting, you did have to deal with disability. And I just wonder, uh, we have a great international audience. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We're in the United States. So if you have a baby in the United States, it is a very different experience than in some of the other countries where you guys actually get more sanity and help. Um, <laughs> I'll go into politics later. Um, but you had to budget for that because you were essentially what was on disability for for when your child was born. How did you handle your finances to be ready for that change in income? Is it like, I forgot what it is because I haven't had a baby for a very long time and <laughs> I have not been able to work for a very long time. What, what is the percentage of income again? Um, well, if you, if you actually, uh, can go on disability, it's, uh, it's generally something like 60%. Um, in my case, because, um, we moved, I was not, uh, in the same school district. I just basically no income whatsoever. Oh, um, <laughs> so we, uh, we didn't know that we were going to move, um, when we had a baby. Um, 
But uh, so uh, Ari, our oldest, is eight. He was born in 2010. My husband and I got married in 2008. And um, so as of when we got married, I had us, um, uh, we decided it together, but I am very much the, uh, the, the money money guru in the marriage as well. Um, but, uh, so I, I decided, to, to, we decided to live on his income and then have mine go to our debts. Um, he bought the house that we lived in when we first were married in 2005 when they were just throwing bags of money at anyone with a pulse. And so it was that one, year. Yeah. And so it was one of those situations where he was able to put something like $4,000 down and then the rest of the down payment was a home equity line of credit. Um, if we'd been married when he bought the house, I, I would have been extremely uncomfortable with that and argued against it. So I did not like having, it was about $33,000 sitting over our heads. So I was like, let's get this paid off. Um, and so that's what we did. We lived on his income and we used mine to pay that off and to go towards my student loans. Um, excuse me. So that was, uh, um, by doing that, we got that paid off in about a year and a half to two years. Um, right about when, when we were ready to move, we, we had a couple of months where, where it was uh, completely gone. Um, and because we had gotten used to living on one income, um, we were in a place where I could take that year off. And the original plan was I was just going to take it off and, and just not have any, any income at all. Um, so, uh, and then added to that, the, the new job that he got, he got a raise. So that also helped a little bit. Um, but it was, uh, it, it was this kind of planning ahead that has always been like, as I said, I've always been a money nerd. That's always been the sort of thing. Like I want to be nimble on my feet financially. And so that's like, I want to reduce whatever obligations I have so that in the future, if there's uh, you know, if something happens uh, like, you know, we have a baby or we move or I lose my job or whatever, we don't have these obligations that are going to make things difficult. That is um, wonderful advice for everyone. <laughs> I think I don't think people understand that debt is is an ankle bracelet that you wear that you kind of drag everything around behind you. You can't move easily. You can't change jobs easily. There's there's a lot of uh, almost prison time you spend with debt. It's mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. definitely a good thing. So what, if you can, if you're thinking about like um, a new diagnosis or if you're looking at a life where you're going to be would your first suggestion be like, Hey, um, let's see what we can do about the debt. Um, yes, I think that that would be, so it's one of those, like, it kind of depends on where in the diagnosis journey you are. Um, you know, for, for some people. So, um, as I mentioned before we started, uh, I have an aunt who has cerebral palsy. And so, you know, she has known her entire life that's, that, uh, she has to figure things out. Um, the other, um, situation that I've dealt with, with disability was my mother in 2012, um, got pneumonia. Um, and it was bad enough that she was put into a medically induced coma. Um, and, uh, so she's, she's doing a lot better now. She's able to work and all of that. But, uh, she went from, she hosted my sister's, um, baby shower on, I think Sunday to Thursday, she was in the hospital and in a coma. So it was like that. And that's the sort of thing where like, there's no way to plan ahead for that kind of disability situation. Um, so, uh, that's, uh, depending on where you are in the, in, in the process. Um, like if you know that you're, you know, like if I could have talked to my mom on that Tuesday, <laughs> You know, I would not have said, uh, like, worry about that. It would have been more like, you know, let us know where all the uh, passwords are. <laughs> well, you make an incredible point. Well, let's let's start in with the beautiful naivete that most healthy people have, which is I will work till I retire. Mm -hmm. And as you know, and I'm sure as most people honestly do know, but don't like to think about, um, there's no guarantees. <laughs> So yeah. just as a regular person or someone who, you know, there's Alzheimer's in the family or something, just someone who's just thinking in like not regular chronic illness terms, what are some of the basic steps you should take to make sure that you and your family are set up for the, oh my God, I'm now in a medically induced coma? 
So, um, so there, there's a couple of things that I would suggest. The, the first one is um, make sure that money is a family affair. Because um, one of the things that made my mom's uh, illness very, very difficult is that she and my stepfather um, have always kept their money separate. Uh, so back in the day, uh, they would, when they'd pay the, the mortgage, they'd put two checks into the envelope to send it to the bank. I don't know how they do it now that everything's online. Um, so, and they just split everything down the middle. And so he didn't have access to her bank accounts. Um, he didn't know what what things were paid automatically, what had to be. So, um, and it's a situation that certainly works for them, but provided both of them are healthy. And so, um, and my, my stepfather is uh, is a lovely man who does not handle crises particularly well. <laughs> so, um, and so that's the sort of thing where like every family needs to make sure money is a family affair and that there's an emergency binder somewhere. Um, so, and those are the sorts of things where like, it's always, uh, you know, the Stephen Covey matrix of importance and, uh, of, um, of tasks. That's the important, but not urgent task that never gets taken care of, but making sure that, uh, you know, you at least, uh, every member of the family who might need to take care of finances knows where to find the finances or even what bank you or you bank with. Or... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was... That was part of it because my mom had more than one bank account in different banks and, and my stepfather didn't know where to find them. Um, so, so that's, uh, that's the first thing is, 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 uh, you know, remember you're not an Island. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, make sure that the, that the, the finances in your family are a family affair, no matter how you do them. Like you could still com keep things completely separate, but as long as you both know how to access each other's just in case. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Then the second thing is to, um, make sure that you have some sort of emergency fund, um, somewhere. So, you know, they, the, uh, typically say, you know, start an emergency fund with a thousand dollars. And that's, uh, again, that's kind of geared towards the people who are living paycheck to paycheck, who never seem to be able to get ahead. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's really important and it's, it's absolutely a great, great place to start. Um, but what you want to eventually get to is an emergency fund that will cover three to six months worth of your, um, uh, expenditures, uh, your expenses. And remember it's your expenses, not three to six months worth of income. So, because with your expenses, there's always stuff you can cut. You can say like, Oh, okay, well, you know, if someone were in a medically induced coma, we're canceling cable, we're doing this, we're cutting that. So we're not going to be eating dinners in restaurants or we'll be eating more dinners in restaurants and, for, and fewer, uh, fewer groceries. But, uh, you know, remember it's, it's expenses rather than income, because if you say, try to have three to six months worth of income set aside, that is going to freak people out. <laughs> people are like, how would I do that? <laughs> and, and even just like, for a lot of us, especially who are chronically ill and are on disability, the idea of being able to save any money is almost mm. an impossibility. Um, what do you think about apps like Acorn, where it takes like what you normally spend and rounds up to a change? Of, like, I was shocked. I got Acorn a while ago, and I'm not being funded by Acorn by, uh, at all, but I really <laughs> do love the app. Um, but it takes whatever I spend, and then it takes the amount to a dollar and puts it away mm -hmm. in a money market. And I was shocked at how quick I got to $1,000. Like, <laughs> that says way too much about my spending habits and my Amazon addiction, but <laughs> it's, um, it's funny because I thought I didn't have any money to spare, but I didn't notice yeah. the money gone. So do you recommend things yeah. like, like Acorn or... Or things like that. Absolutely. I can hear everyone right now going, that's nice for you guys. There's no way I could save any money. And I'm trying to think like ways that people could still, even if, even if they are almost to the bone. Yes, absolutely. So I'm, um, I'm a big proponent of doing whatever financially fits your psychology. So, um, because one of the problems with the personal finance, um, world is we have this tendency to be like, there's one way to do things. And if you're doing it on any other way, you're wrong. So like, if you don't have an Excel spreadsheet and you're not, you know, buying a uh, generic toilet paper and, and saving the, the, uh, the and how the dare you go to Starbucks and your avocado yes. toast. Yes. yes. Yeah. There's, there is this, this, this sense of shaming and, uh, that's something I'm very, I very much want to push back against because there is no wrong way. Um, 
as long as you are reaching your goals. So um, one of the things, one of the things I love about um, the modern world is the, this fintech, these these apps like Acorns, and there's Digit, and there's there's uh, several of them that allow you to productively ignore your money. That's the way that I describe it. I <laughs> so <love> like. That. <laughs> Well, and that's because uh, that's that's really what it is. There's so many people who would rather ignore their money, and it's completely understandable. And it used to be before they had these apps, there was no way to productively ignore your money. There were other workarounds, but there was no way that uh, ignoring it was going to end up with a thousand dollars in a money market account. Um, and so that's why I'm really grateful to these apps. Um, there are other things like there are some folks who uh, are perfectly capable of making good decisions with their money. They just don't want to track it. And so there's things like Mint um, and, and stuff like that that uh, does the tracking for you and um, gives you the information. And from there, you can decide what you want to do with it. And that's actually also very, very helpful. Um, so there are definitely, there are ways to, to find, um, a, a little bit more money in, in, uh, even, uh, a disability budget, a, a fixed income budget. Um, it's a lot more difficult, um, just as so many other aspects of living are more difficult when you are, uh, in a, in, have experienced a disability and that sort of thing. But it is possible the the thing is going into it saying there is something I can do and I will do all I can rather than like, well, what can I do? <laughs> um, and so that's, that's really what's um, uh, what it's all about is, is that attitude of like, I can, I can be in control of my money. My money does not have to control my life. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty good right there. Um, so if you could have gone back to right before your mom got sick and obviously a whole bunch of other things, but just on the financial side of it, um, getting that binder, is there any other major advice you wish that you had been able to change things to make everything easier for her and for, for your family? It, I'm gathering she'd lost her business after she... Yes. Yeah. My mom owned an art gallery for nearly 40 years. Um, so, uh, from the time she was 22, um, wow. until, yeah. <laughs> so my mom, uh, she, she, uh, is like uh, a jumper, you know, she's just like, all right, I'm going to do that. Um, and so that's what happened with the, uh, um, with the art gallery. She was uh, 22 years old. She and my father had been married about a year. He and my grandmother, his mother owned a donut shop and she was working at the donut shop with him. Uh, and she was reading the, uh, want ads because she didn't want to be working at the donut shop her whole life. Um, and saw that someone was selling an art gallery for exactly the amount of money she had just happened to inherit from a distant relative. And so she, she had minored in art history. So she said, I can do that. And she did for 40 years. <laughs> I think I like your mom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, she's a pretty incredible lady. So, um, now with the, again, with the, the things that I, I wish we could have done differently. Um, she is also very, very private. And so, uh, part of the reason why she got sick was cause she was stressed about, about the business. It was, um, this was in 2012, um, she had been through many financial downturns and survived them just fine. But the, this one was uh, was sticking. The, the 2008 downturn was sticking in a way that uh, hadn't before. And because of kind of her privacy, she didn't necessarily confide in my, my stepfather or my sister or me about what was going on with the gallery. And so we would have been able to help her make decisions um, prior to getting sick. And it would have been easier making decisions while she was sick. Although in a lot of ways, um, she said that it's in some ways a blessing that we ended up closing the business while she was asleep um, because then she didn't have to make the decision herself. Um, so, um, which I, I, I totally guess, you know, it, it closed this chapter on her life and it was, uh, we, we really, we tried to keep it going for as long as we could, but, uh, it was clear we had no choice, but to close the business. And, uh, it was, uh, it was, was emotional for all of us, you know, it was this, that was who my mom was. Um, but then she also got to focus on getting well rather than like, oh my goodness, is this, how's the business doing is, uh, you know, uh, like her, her manager, like, is my manager able to do this is, uh, you know, is this happening? So she was focusing on getting well rather than on trying to keep the business going once she came out of her coma. 
So what could someone do to make sure that no matter what they can have that experience where they can just get well? Is there any insurance that you would recommend? Like I know that there's like the long-term care insurance. I don't know how good that is. By the way, so no one sues us. Let me be really clear. This is just, we're talking and um, please don't sue us. We don't have money. And um, (laughs) really say to also just know about and bring to your financial advisor. Um, This is... Yes, that's my legal disclaimer for the day. <laughs> um, but is there anything, it's like I had to shut my business down very quickly and we had all of our plans in place for how we could shut the business down without debt and we could pay off all of our debts and then I got sick fast. So mm. we were not able to, I've always had the disorder I've had, but it did a huge downturn so quickly that we couldn't shut it down properly. And that's uh, where I really felt for your mom because making that choice was one of the hardest things mm. we've had to do. Um I wish I'd had an advisor for this. What is some of your advice for someone who's like getting ready to shut things down, um, either mm-hmm. their business or their career? Is there some, if they have the absolute gift of foresight, what could they, what could they put in place as far as insurance or savings or other things? So um, as much as, uh, as is possible, I'm, I am a big believer and partially because of what happened with my mom in disability insurance. Um, and uh, I'm also like, I, I believe in long-term care insurance in the right situations. The problem is uh, it is so limiting who can apply for these and who can get them. My mother, um, I part of the reason why I believe in insurance is my mother is someone who also always believed in insurance. She always carried like the best insurance that she could afford. Um, and so she looked into disability insurance over and over again over the years, but she has lupus. And so um, she was uninsurable with disability insurance and uh, insurance companies know the statistics. One out of every four 20 year old will uh, experience a, a long or short term disability before they retire. So, I mean, if, with, if a quarter of people are going to uh, experience disability, they're going to make it tough to, uh, to afford disability insurance. So if it's possible Yes, go for that, but know that it's it's often going to be uh, out of reach financially. Same thing with long-term care insurance. It's often out of reach financially. So um, in that reality, the best thing to do is to know ahead of time what your options are. So like go for, you know, there's plan A. Everything goes exactly according to plan. You know, I know that uh, I'm not going to be able to keep my business, but I've got about six months and I can shut it down this way, that way, the other way. And I'll, I'll shut it down without debt. Everything will be fine. I'll pay off all my creditors. That's plan A. Then plan B. Okay. So plan B, let's say if it's three months rather than six, what are my options there and plan out for it. And then plan C, what if I have to declare bankruptcy? What, what do I do? So there are two reasons for this. One is it's always good to have a plan, particularly if you are in a situation where you're sick and can't carry it out yourself. If you've got it already set up, like, oh, I know what I need to do this date, that date, the other date, someone else can implement it for you. And then the other reason is it takes some of the fear away if you have a plan in place, even for the worst case scenario, because you can say like, oh my God, this is, this is so terrifying, but you know what? I know what I need to do. I know what's going to happen. Um, I know how this is going to affect me and my family financially. It's already taken care of. So I can just focus on getting well because I've already thought through what it's going to look like to declare bankruptcy or what it's going to look like to, um, you know, shut the business down and, um, have to, have to, you know, payback creditors, things like that. That is some very, very good advice there. Especially again, we are in America. So I know that some of you are in um, kind countries that actually take care of people who are sick. (laughs) Uh, Take a while, guess who I voted for. Um, And... So I, I actually know that a lot of you are a little puzzled when we're talking about you have to focus on your finances to get well because it is not free to go to the hospital here in this country. And it actually, we have a very, I don't remember what the statistics are, but a huge percentage of the people in our country in the United States are bankrupt because of medical bills. So just to be really clear, and now our insurances aren't really covering everything they used to, which is, I'm driving this right back to finances, I promise. <laughs> I'm so good at getting off track, but I'm on track. Um, you can get very unexpected medical bills where you think you're insured for something and the insurance decides after the fact that that was not insured. So I have gotten $15,000 bills, even with good insurance for medical scans at an ER. So if you, even if you think you're covered with 
your insurance, please make sure you have something extra aside for $15,000 unexpected bills. Um, do you have any, I, I'm totally asking you something out of the blue. And if you are not ready for this question, just let me know and we'll move right on. But do you have any suggestions about how to handle those medical bills that are very unexpected and in the six figures? Um, so the, there, there are two things that you can do. First, um, you can always call the hospital and ask for, you know, ask for a reduction, ask for a negotiation. They are set up to be able to help you pay it back. Um, so, and sometimes it's like it, on time, you know, just like, okay, can I give you 50 bucks a month for the rest of my natural life? And I'll be sure. So that's, that's one thing you can do. Um, the other thing you can do is you can really advocate for yourself and, um, um, complain and argue and, uh, and, the reason why I, I say that second is because the sad fact of the matter is that the people who most need to be able to make those claims and arguments are the ones who have the least spoons to be able to it, oh, to do you it. Know the so that, word. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I love I love that uh, that uh, analogy. <laughs> oh God, all of us do. <laughs> it's the easiest way to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and so that's something where I, I feel like it's, uh, there are, um, medical advocates out there who, who help with those sorts of things. And, uh, depending on the situation that's, uh, you know, it, it might make sense to hire medical advocates. Um, you know, if you're facing like five figure, six figure bills, um, you know, the, that's terrifying and a medical advocate can help you. Um, the other option is, you know, when people say, what can I do? The one that you take with you uh, when you buy a new car from a used car dealership, you say, hey, have I got a job for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but that's something where you can uh, uh, ask friends and family who are, you know, would, uh, are, are kind of gathering around to help you as you're, as you're dealing with this difficult time to say like, hey, can you advocate for me um, if you are not able to afford a, a professional medical advocate? I highly recommend that one. My mom does that for me and I would not survive without her. But that bill, I actually got down by calling and saying, there's no way I can afford this. And they brought it down to $300. So just oh, wow. an antidotal evidence, sometimes just calling me like, there is no way that would ever happen. I came to the hospital in good faith because I thought I was dying. And just because it ended up being something different, I, as a layperson, could never have diagnosed myself. Sometimes that actually does work and you can get huge reductions. Mm -hmm. from that so just like anecdotal evidence give it a try you have nothing to lose um so we also have people who listen to this who are caregivers and you had mentioned your aunt who has cerebral palsy is there a way that a caregiver can set up things so that the person is always going to be as okay as possible financially mm -hmm. uh and that's actually that's something that um i i wish my grandmother had done um my grandmother very much came of came of age in the the kind of like family takes care of family um, a viewpoint. So she never signed my, my aunt up for, uh, the social security, um, that she was entitled to. And uh, there were other government programs that she was entitled to. And my grandmother, uh, was kind of, uh, did, she didn't trust the government. <laughs> Maybe that would be my grandmother. Um, I like the women in your family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my grandma Betta was, uh, she was a firecracker. So, um, so she, her plan was the family would always take care of, of Robin and, uh, you know, things don't always go the way you anticipate. Um, and so Robin is now, my man is now in a, um, a facility for, for adults, um, uh, so that they can live independently. Um, it's not ideal, but it's, you know, what the family can afford. Uh, so like the, the first thing is like, look into what is available through the government, you know, there's not as much available as, as you would like. Um, if you are on, um, uh, SSI, there's that, uh, requirement of having no, no more than $2,000, uh, in your name, which is, oh, <laughs> that seems just cruel to me. Um, but there are options out there. Uh, the other thing is there are a number of, um, special needs trusts, um, available. There are lawyers out there who can put together special needs trust. So, uh, a dear friend of mine has a 13 year old boy who has, um, fairly severe autism. 
And it's unclear if he's ever going to be able to live independently. Uh, and so my friend asked me if I would be willing to be a trustee for the special needs trust she and her husband have put together in case something happens to the two of them. And so that's the sort of thing where like looking into uh, t- spending an hour with uh, a lawyer who uh, specializes in these kinds of trusts is uh, time and money well spent because they can help you navigate what, uh, what is most uh, difficult about uh, dealing with the finances of, of uh, living with a disability um, and also uh, make sure that you have a, uh, something set up to uh, make to ensure financial security um, later in life. That is um, wonderful. So, what kind of person would you find? Would you just find a regular accountant, or would you find someone? How would you find that special needs the person who would be able to specialize in that? Um, so there are the, there are lawyers, uh, generally if you look, um, for an estate planning lawyer, mm. um, and if you find uh, like local estate planning lawyers and call and ask if they have anyone who specializes in special needs trusts. That is fantastic advice. So I have another one for you. Um, again, I'm just going to keep you on, <laughs> on your toes on this. <laughs> My Sorry. apologies. Uh, a lot of us who have chronic illness or disability, we get very, um, bored (laughs) staying at home. And I know so many of us who have started businesses or started things. um, Like I started the podcast and I write and illustrate kids books and I run a second podcast because I don't stay still well. Um, What's some of your advice about starting a business up? Um, so the, the, the thing about starting a business is anything that you can do with no, no, um, um, overhead, you know, no, no fees to, to start. I mean, podcasts. Other than, yeah, podcasting and, uh, writing and illustrating. Those are great. You probably already have the, the art supplies. You already have the, <laughs> have the computer, you know, that, that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, and that's, uh, that's a, a, a really great way to kind of like allow something that could be a hobby become, um, an income generator for you. Um, you know, it's when you have to put any money down, um, that, uh, you really need to be careful with new businesses. Um, and so, and there's so much with the internet, there's so much that you can do without actually having to spend any, any money, you know, other than incidentals here and there. So that's the, the first thing is, is, uh, you know, don't, but I, I, it's very easy to go gung ho and be like, I'm going to buy an entire podcasting studio or, you know, whatever it is. Don't do um, that. Do not do that. People, yeah. <laughs> if you like this podcast and you're fine with it, I will tell you right now, it's done on my eight year old iMac and GarageBand. <laughs> so there's not even a microphone in front of me. These were given to me, um, in mic. <laughs> don't buy a big podcast studio. <laughs> Yeah. So, so that's, that's the sort of thing where like, just you, you don't need to spend money to start a business. Um, and then the second thing is, um, what I did when I first started freelancing and I am so glad I got into the habit of it was every single, um, check that I got every time I got paid, even if, if it was as little as 25 or $50, I made sure I put 35% of it in savings to pay my quarterly taxes. So please do that, everyone. (laughs) I ran a business for 10 years and I didn't get this advice on time. And we ended up with a $30,000 tax bill we could not pay. So please do this. Yeah. So um, getting in the habit. And again, it's a, if it's a business with your first starting, like when I was first freelancing, I I thought I was just doing it to bring a little bit of money in that one year. And I, I probably made like, Twelve or thirteen thousand dollars that year. I mean, it was not much money, and I did not end up owing taxes um, because what my husband's um, with withholding was at his corporate job covered what would have been my taxes. But um, because I got in the habit of it, for one thing, at the end of that year, I had that uh, that amount of money that I could reinvest back in the business, which is what I have uh, continued to do since then. So I've got you know, if there's any tax money that you don't need to spend, you can you know, oh, okay, I've got a little bit of money. I can buy like a a nice microphone or, you know, whatever it is. Um, And then also you've got to remember you are not necessarily going to be at that level always. So if you do keep going with the business, if you're already in the habit of setting aside 35% of everything you make, then you are going to be in a much better place. Um, when you start making uh, more money and actually do owe the quarterly taxes and you don't want the tax man to send spike the, uh, (laughs) <laughs> the enforcer to your house. 
If Spike is a German Shepherd, go ahead and send Spike. We love dogs. <laughs> Um, so I don't make money just in case the IRS is listening right now. Um, but one thing to always keep in mind if you're on disability is to make sure you've read through your disability packet, because if you make too much money, it deeply affects your disability. And they do not take that kindly. Again, anyone listening, I don't actually make money on any of this. This is to keep me busy. So, um, but definitely make sure you've looked at your disability packet because they will do a whole bunch of stuff to you. If you make money more than what they say you can, it gets crazy. Mm -hmm. So I was going to ask you about saying that, I, um, I see pushed a lot and I'm not sure if it's a good idea. Um, is the using home equity to get through bad disabling times? Is that something um, that's recommended against for? Again, please don't sue us. This is something to discuss with lawyers <laughs> and financial advisors. I'm just my curious. <laughs> so that's one of those, like, if you've got a list of, of options, that should be close to the bottom. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, that is something where if you have any reason to believe that the, the, the disabling event is temporary. So, um, so I'll give you an example right now. My, my, my husband has pneumonia. Um, he has uh, walking pneumonia and uh, he's, he's, he's okay. This is the sickest I've ever seen him. He's the person who I usually have to wrestle him to the ground and call in for him when he's sick because he does not like missing work. Um, and so we're, we're coming up on two weeks. He's been out. Um, so we're not concerned about, about it, but you know, we've had to talk to his, uh, his boss about how he will code the time away from work. Um, and if he could maybe work from home and just say like, I'm just not trying not to get everybody sick. But, you know, he does also need to focus on on getting well. So this theoretically could become a short term disability. Um, and so, you know, if we were in a, um, a dire financial straits and just needed to be able to get through this, you know, a home equity loan might not be uh, a bad idea because we anticipate that he'll be back on his feet soon and we'll be able to, to get back to work and we'd be able to pay off that loan. Um, However, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, so that's why taking out that, that line of credit is um, low on the list of things that, uh, that you want to do to be able to deal with it. It's a possibility. Um, just go into it with your eyes wide open and know all the caveats. And again, our international audience, we are in the United States, which means we don't necessarily get sick days. So I know in many of your countries, if you are sick, you are paid to stay home and not get everyone else sick. Here, you actually are penalized for trying to protect your fellow workers. Just a nice little reminder for everyone who's like, why are they talking about this? Of course you stay home if you have pneumonia. Not in the United States. Yes. Um, so... I was going to ask you something and I just lost my brain. Um, wow. Uh, sorry, my medication's kicking in way faster than I thought it would and I'm trying to catch up with it. So for HSAs, which are what we have in the United States, which is health savings accounts, which by the way, I didn't know if you were on Medicare, you don't get to use it. Uh, really big shock. Um, is there anything else you want to say about HSAs? Because they can be super helpful if you're not on Medicare. They, uh, I am of two minds about HSAs. I think they're great if you're healthy. <laughs> <laughs> so is insurance. <laughs> yeah. Um, cause the problem with an HSA is you have to have a high deductible health insurance plan to be able to have an HSA and high deductible is high deductible. I think the, uh, a minimum is like $5,500 a year. Um, and, and you're still also paying premiums. So you've got the premiums you're paying every month. The high deductible, so, and, and, uh, for instance, earlier this year, um, my right eye went wonky, like it was just blurred. Um, turned out I had optic neuritis, but that's something that they can only diagnose through process of elimination. So my little eye adventure cost uh, over $4,000. So, <laughs> um, we would have had to pay all of that out of pocket. Um, so, the, uh, that's the problem with the HSA. So you're already spending money um, to for the premiums, the high deductible in case you actually do need to uh, need medical care, and then on top of that, you need to find the money to put into the health savings account. Um, now the the money goes in tax free, so or pre tax, um, so that's good, and it comes out um, without being taxed if you use it for um, an actual medical uh, need. 
the problem is like this only works if you're healthy and then like for many years before you need to access the HSA. Um, I, when people talk about doing HSAs in preparation for retirement, because I do write about retirement quite a bit, and I actually think that a Roth IRA makes more sense um, rather than an HSA. So for um, listeners, a Roth IRA, IRA is an independent uh, retirement account. And the Roth IRA is the kind that you fund with money you've already paid taxes on. So, but what that means is you can take the money out tax-free. Um, now there are, uh, um, limits on how, or minimums on how old you, you have to be, um, to be able to access the money. You have to be 59 and a half. I do not know if, uh, there are, um, uh, uh, Sorry, my, my brain just stopped <laughs> No, working. no, I just, I, I, communicable disease of like brain fog just like went straight <laughs> over to you. <laughs> yeah. So there, um, I don't know if there are exceptions for, uh, for disability, uh, in terms of accessing your, your, um, Roth IRA. I believe that there are, there are generally exceptions for those sorts of, uh, tax, um, tax advantaged accounts. But the reason why I believe in those is because you don't have to use the money for medical if you continue to remain healthy. Um, you can use the money for medical um, and you're still pulling it out tax free because you've already paid taxes on it. Um, so now for someone who is living on a disability budgets, uh, you know, finding money to put into a, <laughs> a Roth IRA or an HSA in the first place sounds hilarious. Um, but, you know, places where you can put money aside um, is, is always helpful, like thinking, thinking that through. And then something that, uh, it wasn't until I started writing about money that I thought of this, but figuring out how to diversify your taxes, uh, the, someone, an accountant mentioned that, which means like, make sure you're not paying all your taxes all at once. Mm. So, um, and so he was talking, uh, specifically in terms of, <laughs> sorry, you have a guest over there. I see the little kitty. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is uh this is the dude. <laughs> oh, oh, I love a good reference. <laughs> so when my kids are old enough to figure out the reference, they are gonna be so confused. <laughs> <laughs> I think the kids are always just gonna be confused when they get old enough yeah. to figure us all out. <laughs> so that brings me to another question. A lot of us with chronic illness and disability have children. What can we do about like saving for college or is it just the same sort of idea of the what other people would do or is there anything special for people with disability to save up for kids? So the thing that I would, um, I want people to remember is, uh, and I'm, I'm very much guilty of this where like, it, it is very important to me for my kids to be able to go to whatever college they want to go to and can get into. I don't want money to be the limiting factor. Uh, sorry. Uh, again, but, international audience, college, not free college yes. up to over a hundred thousand dollars, depending on where someone goes. Um, and to get a bachelor's degree at a state school currently in California, I think they were telling us it was going to be about 40,000 something rather. So this is not a small amount. I know you guys in England are really pissed off because you're paying 10,000 a year, I believe. We're not even close over here. That's almost yeah. junior college. So just wanted to make that clear for everyone. It's like, why yeah. are they worried about this is why. Okay. Sorry. So, um, so the, uh, um, um, for me, it's very important that my kids be able to go to school, whatever school they want to. I don't want money to be the reason they can't go to their preferred school. You know, if they can't get in, that's fine. That's, you know, that's, that's life. Whole another issue. <laughs> yeah. But you know, if they get, got into their dream school and, uh, their father and I just can't afford it, that, that would break my heart. Um, the thing is though, even with that, that viewpoint, I have to remember what are my kids going to thank me for in 40 years? So if I put money aside for college and, and uh, neglect my own retirement and I have to live in my kid's basement, <laughs> um, they are not going to thank me for the college degree. <laughs> that is a beautiful point. <laughs> So you got to take the long view and re recognize um, that as much as you want to be able to give your kids this gift of an education, and I totally get that, the more important gift that you want to give them is your own um, financial security uh, so that you are not in a position where they then have to choose between taking care of you and being able to send their kids to college or being able to retire themselves. So, you know, the being financially secure personally should be your very first um, 
first item on the to-do list. After that, if you're able to put money aside for your kid's college, that's wonderful and it's an excellent gift, but it is not necessary. You can get loans for college. Um, there are things that, uh, that kids can do to be able to, um, get the education that they need, um, because you can't take loans for disability. You can't take loans for retirements, um, but you can take loans for college. That is a wonderful point. I just also want to say, because we have a 17 year old here at home, um, even if you think that the Ivy Leagues are not out, are out of the picture, um, if it's a financial issue, most of the Ivy Leagues are now free for families that make less than 100000 and completely free for families that make less than sixty. I was shocked by that. I just wanted to, as we're freaking everyone out who's listening to this, I want to just put a little <laughs> ray of sunshine in that there are things and that there are states like Oregon and San Francisco that are looking into, San Francisco's not a state, I'm sorry, California, <laughs> which I freaking live in, you'd think I'd have this together doing well people uh, that there are states that are now looking at free at least the year after high school so there are things in the works I don't want to just be all doom and gloom <laughs> uh, but I also want to explain for everyone listening who's like um we don't have that problem over here in our country <laughs> so I, I also there there's uh, some of the best teaching you're gonna find is at community colleges um, because the, the professors are actually teachers they're not there to, to uh, uh, you know the publisher parish that they talk about <laughs> So, uh, um, yes, <laughs> that's and, also something to remember. <laughs> and if you really want the ultimate tip, it's go to places that are um, a junior college that's near Stanford. Uh, that's Foothill. Or I went there <laughs> or go to um, any of the junior colleges near MIT, NYU, UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, any of the big colleges. If you go to the junior college that's near there, most of the adjunct professors teach there. So you mm -hmm. get the same education at a eighth gotcha. of the cost. <laughs> Just my tip to everyone. I know I'm not the financial advisor here, but that's how I got through college and paid for it. So, well, that and I also am older. So I think it's really important when we talk about the millennials and like, why aren't you able to handle yourselves? Well, when I went to junior college, it was $11 a unit. Mm -hmm. Now it's $50 a unit. So I think it's really important to like remember those things too um we're getting close to the holidays and i was wondering do you have any tips for people who have um a massively decreased budget on how to handle holiday spending because the numbers are obscene in how much we spend mm -hmm. on gifts during the holidays do you have any suggestions or things that you do in your own family to keep sanity around holiday spending um, so I, I try really hard to, uh, for me, uh, like the, the, the gift spigot, <laughs> I want to turn off in general. Huh. Um, just, you know, especially once, once, uh, I had kids, you know, people, they so want to show their love and the easiest way to do that is to buy something. Um, but you know, it just, and it's so much easier to buy things now than it was when I was a kid. You know, if my grandmother wanted to buy me a toy, she had to go to Toys R Us. Uh, whereas all my mom has to do is, is click a button on her, her iPad. <laughs> so, um, so for me, I already start with like, I, I prefer experience gifts. Um, and so that's what I ask for. And that's what I try to give as much as I can is experience gifts um, as much as, you know, within my budget. So like things uh, and so that sort of thing can allow you to be a little bit more um, uh, circumspect about how much things cost. Um, if you think if you start with I'm going to give experience gifts, you can start thinking about like, well, what are experiences that are low cost or even free that I can give and find a way to make it a beautiful um, presentation, you know, like if you want to um, take someone on a picnic, you know, have a, a, a basket with, uh, you know, and you can even just find something at Goodwill and, and put things in it, you know, a blanket and a bottle of wine, you know, that sort of thing. And just say, like, I'm going to take you on a picnic when the weather warms up or, you know, since you're in California, I'm sure it's nicer there than it is here in Wisconsin. Um, you're going to kill me, but it's 80 degrees right now. Oh, oh goodness. <laughs> Which I have a heart condition, so I'm hating. I would so much rather be where you are. I'm like, I can't even go outside of my house right now because once mm -hmm. it's 80, my heart goes into insanity. So I'm stuck yeah. here in like my fan is right over me right now. I should do Breck girl hair right now. Um, but yeah, I'm so sorry. I know that would probably be much more fun for you to be out here. So what, I mean, we're getting close to the end and I really just want to like, you've given me so much information. I can't thank you enough. What is like the number one thing that you're like, if I could just scream it from the rooftops, put it on a billboard, 
any person, I wish you would do this for your finances. Um, I wish you would uh, pay attention to them. Um, you know, I talked about productively ignoring your finances. Uh, one of the things people tend to want to avoid thinking about money. Um, and the problem is you are in a relationship with your money. And so if you, every time you saw your spouse or partner was like, oh, you, I got to do something with you, you would not have a very good relationship. <laughs> And that's kind of how it is with, with money. If, uh, you know, your feeling when you're paying bills is like, oh, I hate this, you. You are going to have a negative relationship with your money. And if you have a negative relationship with your money, things kind of reinforce. So um, find, finding a way to make um, paying attention to your money more fun um, and something you look forward to, which sounds crazy, but, you know, it is possible. I mean, it, and also money is like laundry. You know, it's you're never done. So you have ways of making yourself do laundry, too. No, I don't. <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> I think we just discovered who the adult in this conversation is. Um, no, I hear you. I, the, like having the Acorn app was actually a fun way to keep track. I knew that no matter what I did, it was never going to splash red things at me and make me sad and scared. Like, that's helpful. Yeah, and that's uh, um, you know there are there's a lot of gamification with the with the uh, fintech apps. Um, for me, I I love a good star chart, you know, star sticker chart. You know, like I did this every day this month, and I got a yellow gold star. Oh, you know? your kids are ten and eight. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and, and like and I actually do an Excel spreadsheet that I have color coded because and it's in rainbow order. You know, but uh, there are any number of ways to make it a little bit more fun. And if you take the time to take care of your money, your money is going to take better care of you. That is a wonderful place to stop on unless you have something else that I just randomly have forgotten, which happens more than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> uh, well, I do just want to give a, a quick pitch for my book. It's called End Financial Stress Now. That so. is wonderful. <laughs> Um, and it's, um, you can, uh, pay off debt and save money on any income. And I tried very hard to make, uh, one of my big pet peeves about personal finance books is that they are often geared towards upper middle class folks who are just bad with money. And I'm not saying those folks don't need help, but not there's as a lot as the rest of us. <laughs> the re and the rest of us need more help. So I tried to be very cognizant of the fact that not everyone is able to just, you know, stop drinking lattes and everything will be fine. Um, so, um, so I tried to make it clear that like, even if you can't fix all of your financial problems, you can reduce or, uh, end your stress. That is wonderful. And if you go over to our show notes, the first thing you will see is a link to the book, a link to website, a link to all social media, please follow. This is all really good. And advice and not only good advice but not dry and boring advice this is like <laughs> financial planning for people with no attention span this is wonderful <laughs> i've been like obsessively going through the blog and taking lots of notes i am hoping someday to be able to convince you to do guest blog articles on our blog i i would love that if you're ever willing to <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That would be amazing. I will. And I know your publicist's name now. So I will absolutely <laughs> bug you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, until next week, be kind, be gentle, and be a badass.